it's true or false. Uh, how many knows what kind of sermon series we're going through the past few weeks? Anybody know? All of you who make noise are correct. The message of the prophets. We're going to continue on. We're going to have just a few more weeks of, of um, some of the minor prophets, the prophetic books in the Old Testament. So join along with us as we continue. We're going to be in the book of Zephaniah tonight. Again, it's all those prophets are kind of clumped in between the book of Daniel and in the New Testament. So start at the, if you're at Matthew, hang a left. And keep turning until you find you might have to turn one page at a time. There's just, some of them are short books. And if you get to Daniel, you've gone too far, hang a right when you get to the book of Daniel. And, you, and we're going to be in the book of Zephaniah. And um, we're kind of going to continue on this theme of, of really discovering what the nature and the character of God is. And what particularly the nature and character of God as revealed in the Old Testament and how Jesus melds all those those lessons together in his person. And we're going to just, we're going to dive into this and learn something fascinating um, tonight. So I'm going to read two different passages. We're going to start in Zephaniah chapter one, starting in verse two. I'm going to read an extremely depressing verse, and it's going to be gruesome and terrifying and judgment, kind of like going on by the theme that we've been on the past few weeks. We're going to talk about the judgment of God on a wicked nation that's turned to sin, turned to false idols. We're talking the worst kind of stuff. They're murdering their babies on their own altars to their false gods. The Lord is, de is detesting this. And so in his anger, we're going to see a verse of, of the Lord pouring out his anger. And then we're going to read a verse at the end of Zephaniah that's where the tone is going to completely change. And we're going to discover what God is like. Cool? Are you all with me? So starting in chapter 1, verse 2, the Bible says this. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away people and animals alike. I will sweep away the birds of the sky and the fish in the sea. I will reduce the wicked to heaps of rubble, and I will wipe humanity from the face of the earth, says the Lord. Does that sound like an angry God to you? Because it does to me. Now let's flip over to the next page in Zephaniah chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 15. It says this, For the Lord will remove his hand of judgment and will disperse the armies of your enemy, and the Lord himself, the King of Israel, will live among you. Listen to this. At last, your troubles will be over, and you will never again fear disaster. On that day, the announcement to Jerusalem will be, Cheer up, Zion. Don't be afraid, for the Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With His love, He will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you. Other translations say he will sing over you with joyful songs. Let's pray. Jesus, we ask you to speak to us tonight. Lord, open our hearts. We want to know your character and your heart tonight. Everyone in this room, Lord Jesus, would you just open our ears to hear from your word, O oh God. In Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. So I'm thinking about a mother who is ticked off at her child in Walmart. Anybody seen something similar to that? 
or a child, your children like run out into the street, what does Mama Bear do? Runs out to the street. Do you think that mother's going to be happy and cheerful when a kid is screaming and knocking clothes over in a store? Do you think mother's going to be like, oh, you know, like that's it's just funny because you you see kind of two sides of Mama Bear uh, when you walk up, and and so. They, What's even funnier is when you kind of catch them in the act and they think no one's around them. They're like, you little snot-nosed brat. You know, and they're screaming. They're like, get out of there. And, you know, they take the sandal off and they're like, like come here. Like, you know, like, smack you with a sandal, right? So, yes. So then you walk up to them, right? And they're like, oh, hi. How's it going? Weren't you at church last Sunday? I was there, you know. And, and there's this, like, all of a sudden, like, where did that come from, right? And there's this kind of joy and joviality going on. So it, it, when we're talking about, to, like, what we're talking about tonight, we're talking about the severity of God and the goodness of God. And you can kind of see how this happens in everyday life. When children act up, parents get angry. And whenever friends come over to visit... People get nice and sweet and happy and, you know, and all that fun stuff. But the point is when we're reading through the Old Testament like this and you read through all of the things that the Lord is speaking, there's some context that we need. So God has always and consistently had a strategy with human, with human, humankind, mankind. The Lord has always had a strategy to move us. And, and there's, there's kind of like a three-step process here. The first thing that God wants to do with you and with me is, is figurative in the Old Testament. The first thing is he wants to bring us out of Egypt. He wants to bring us out of our sinful old ways of the past. He wants to bring us out of Egypt. And then once he gets you out of Egypt, the next goal that God has is to get Egypt out of you. So you get out of Egypt, you're in a desert, and you're basically alone. And thinks figuratively here, you're, you have like nothing but God, basically. You have no food, you have no spiritual water, you have no bread, you have nothing. You're just, God is the only thing keeping you alive. Because in the desert, Israel is put in a position to completely trust their God, who is leading them through the wilderness, Right? So that's step two, that God wants to get Egypt out of you. And then the last step is that he wants to bring you, once Egypt is completely out of you, he will bring you back into Egypt to fulfill his purposes and his mission for his kingdom. What I'm saying, guys, is that God's ultimate plan is to make you a missionary. That's his plan for you. Spoiler alert. <laughs> And if that sounds scary to you, it's like, well, I don't know if I was, I don't know if missionary life is a life for me. I don't, I don't know if I can do that. Raising support sounds really scary. But, but follow with me. Because when, when I mean God wants to make you a missionary, what I mean is his goal for your life is to make you spiritually dangerous. There are no spiritual sissies allowed in heaven. Okay. God is put, wants to put every single one of us through this process of, of um, discipleship, this process of weeding out all the weeds and the things out of our life to prepare us for an eternal purpose. Are you all with me? 
That's God's plan to bring you out of Egypt, out of that sinful life, and then to get that sin, those habits, those things that separate you from God. He wants those to be taken, rid out of your life, completely gone forever, so that he can send you back and save more people. Okay? That's his goal for you. So we say this frequently in Chi Alpha that the mission field is where your feet are. Yeah. The mission field is where your feet are. You know what that means? Those of you that plan on being doctors, that's, that means actually you can still be a missionary and a doctor at the same time. Because it's not so much the things that you're doing on a daily basis. It's the person you are becoming for Jesus Christ in his image for his purposes. Can you, low, can you mow the lawn for Jesus at home? You better believe it. You absolutely can. And there's some people giving me some strange looks. Because think about it. Your, your mission field is where your feet are. You, you're, the, the fact that you're a, whether you're a missionary or not is what's going on in here. It's are, are you worshiping God with everything on the inside? Because when, you're, when the center integration point of your heart is on the Lord, then that's going to pour out of you on the outside. You know what that means? Is that every single person in your life is going to be changed by you, by your influence. That's what I mean by mission field is where you feel. That means you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, you can be an engineer, you can be a teacher, and you can still be a missionary because you represent Christ to a world that desperately is starving and needs him. Have I lost anyone? Guess what? That was completely not a part of the plan. So we're, gonna, we're just going to continue on, right? Uh, that's God's strategy to get you out of Egypt, get the sin out of you, and then send you back because he's got a plan and a mission for you. So in Zephaniah chapter 1, he says this scary, scary thing, doesn't he? He says, I will utterly consume all things from the surface of the ground. That is scary. <laughs> right? It's terrifying. So... Something I've always noticed by critics of the Old Testament, critics of the Bible, critics of Christianity, is most people that have an argument against the Old Testament or an argument against Christianity, they bring up a complaint that basically sounds like this. Why do all these terrible things have to happen to mankind? Right? You ever heard that before? Why? How could God be good if there's so much evil and suffering in the world? I notice that every single time that question is brought up, the context of it is actually always selfish. It's, the root of that question is basically, why me? Have you thought about that? It's always a selfish root. Why me? Why do all these things have to happen to me? Why do these bad things happen to, happen to mankind? You know what I've noticed is nobody is asking this question. Nobody is asking the question, why do all these bad things happen, have to happen to God? That's a question you don't hear. That's a question no one typically focuses on. Why do all these horrible things have to happen to God? Why did God have to go through all that horrible stuff in the Old Testament? Why was it, was it necessary to turn away from God and worship idols and start slaughtering your children? Why was it necessary for Jesus to have to suffer and die on a cross? Everyone, t it seems, around us in the world today is fixated on me. When we open up the scriptures, we finally get a glimpse of what the question we should be asking and the attention that we should have and the, and the direction that we should be on is, what is God like? <laughs> 
Why did these things have to happen to him to get our mind and our focus off of ourselves and onto God? Are y'all with me? Yeah. So that's a, a premise I want to leave us with as we continue on because God has a plan and a strategy in human history to turn you into something that's going to matter. He doesn't want you to stay exactly where you're at. He loves you too much to allow you to be spiritually useless. He wants us in his training discipleship program to be a soldier in his army. And guys, there is nothing like it. There is no greater joy than being in the family in the army of Jesus. Who agrees with that statement? Amen. Amen. So the, the first thing that we see in this scripture is God's severity. So what I mean by his severity is this. is it, Literally, the word obviously comes from severe. It's a severe character nature of God, which basically means God is a God of his word. When God says he's going to do something, that means he's going to do it. When he makes a and has a stipulation on our life, he is stating that for a reason and he will not back away from something that he has said. That's what I mean by the, the severity of God. When he says something, he means it. Okay? When he says something that we read in scripture that is something for us... It is something that he actually expects us to do. When he says, don't like uh, fornicate with another person's spouse. Or don't do, do this. If you have even a, a thought of anger in your heart or malice towards your brother, you've already committed murder. Like that type of teaching that Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, he's raising the bar on how we should behave. <laughs> right? And raising it quite high, I might add. And he is teaching us this principle that he does not back down from these things. And, and you have to understand why, because when you read through the Old Testament, you read how many times Israel has turned away from God. How many has read like most of the Old Testament here? Have you read it? Like, doesn't it frustrate you how many times like Israel repents and then goes back to sin and then repents and goes, you're like, my goodness, why don't, why won't you people just get it and start to be faithful? And then you start to get convicted and be like, oh my goodness, this is actually just like me, right? It's like, I am Israel. I'm just like Israel. I'm so stupid. I, I turn away from Jesus and then I'm like, I'm so sorry, please take me back, right? Guys, that's the point of the Old Testament. That's the point of reading about what this nation is going through because it's a reflection of what's going on in your own heart, right? Idolatry is bad. That's, that's, like, that's one thing that's super, super bad. But building a nation where wickedness is allowed to thrive, that's where God draws a very, very, very deep line in the ground. Idolatry is one thing. Idolatry is horrible. And it's very, very, very wicked and evil. But when idolatry gets so bad, when it becomes ingrained in our culture to where we can no longer raise our children and to where it's completely impossible for them to know Jesus or walk with God, the Bible teaches us that's when judgment comes. Think about America for a second. How difficult is it to grow up actually still loving Jesus by the time you're 60. Wow. How difficult is it nowadays? 
Guys, it's getting harder and harder and harder to know Jesus in the freest country in the world. Guys, this is very serious, isn't it? But what, what the severity of God means is he will not allow wickedness to go unnoticed. When he says these things are going to destroy your nation, when you dive and fall in love with those things, his severity is the thing that says, look, I'm, I'm, I'm a severe, serious God. I will not let that go. Right? Y'all with me? So a lot of this is, is an example in the Old Testament in uh, 2 Samuel and, and, and some other books of that, about the Ark of the Covenant, right? You remember the Ten Commandments were placed in the Ark, and then the Israelites would bring the Ark of the Covenant to different places. They would bring it with them as they were traveling through the wilderness. But the Ark, just look at the Ark of the Covenant as an example. There is a latent terror in the Ark. There's a, there, not even joking, there was a law that God put into place that you were not supposed to travel closely to the ark. In fact, it, it says in the Bible that there shall be a space between you and the ark. And that space was equal to a half mile long. So when Israel is traveling across the wilderness, the ark is a half a mile that way. And the Lord says, don't you go near that thing. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of Indiana Jones. And when the, the Ark is, you know, the Nazis, because it's a documentary, right? And the Nazis <laughs> discovered the Ark of the Covenant, right, by using Indiana Jones. And then when the, the lid comes off the Ark, and then all of a sudden, like, the Spirit of God comes out. And then people's, like, ah! like, people's faces are melting off their bones, and their eyeballs are, like, doing this, right? That's, that's like... So, like, if a movie, if Spielberg and George Lucas can capture that kind of terror, it's like a PG movie, too. It doesn't even make sense. It should not be anywhere near PG nowadays. But, so, there's that kind of terror. But, guys, imagine the power that really was in that arc. Like, you, a movie can depict something crazy, but imagine what, it, what, like, how bad it really would have been. So get this, in 2 Samuel, there's, they're traveling with the ark, and Israel's disobeying this law. They're not traveling with the distance, and the Lord is putting something, a severe rule. I want you to respect this thing, and don't travel anywhere near it. So someone, or a horse, or the donkey, or someone stumbles, and the ark starts to fall. Now this guy, just in, in his trying to be a decent lad... Reaches out to stabilize the ark. He reaches out and touches it, and instantly he dies. Now, that's some scary stuff. That's terrifying. But why is this going on is because the Lord is teaching a very important lesson. Israel, I need you to take seriously the things I say. Because if you do not take something like this seriously, then you will end up to be a wicked nation, and I can't put up with you at that point. I can't go near your sin. Do you follow me? What the Lord is teaching us is that he's saying, church, do not destroy or ruin a parable that I'm writing. Don't you dare get in the way of a symbol that I am creating. When Moses strikes the rock for, so water can flow out of it instead of speaking to it, when the Lord gave him specific instructions, the Lord punished him and Moses could never enter the promised land because of the severity of God. And what the Lord is communicating to Moses is, 
Don't ruin a symbol that I am creating for my people to see me one day when I come. Do you see this? There's a message the Lord is trying to communicate. And so think about when Jesus is calming the storm. Okay, Jesus is in the boat. A storm is fixing to kill everyone. And then he barks at the storm, tells it to shut up and be quiet. And the storm calms. Imagine being in that boat. And the disciples. Now, the Bible says something. And we call this um, biblical major uh, understatement. Because the Bible says after Jesus calms the storm and they're looking at him. The waves are beaten into calm and silence. The wind that are fixing to tear the sails to shreds completely stops. And then the Bible says, and then the disciples were exceedingly afraid. It's like such an understatement, isn't it? Because how terrifying would it be to be in a boat with a man that can calm the storm and the wind with a word? You, you better, I'd be shaking in my boots, Right? What I'm saying tonight, guys, is God can save equally magnificent as he can destroy. God has the severity and the power to destroy all things. What kind of power do you think he has to save? Right? Because we're talking about the severity of God, and then there's another part of his nature, That's the goodness of God. And the beauty of this is that God is both of these things at the same time. Brian spoke very well this morning in LTC about how God's wrath is rooted in his love. And how in order for God to love purely and fully, he must be angry at sin. He has to. And and we're going to get into this a little bit later tonight, but when... When sin enters the world, you have to understand that's a new emotion God has never felt for all of eternity because sin didn't exist until it did. Are you with me? When sin existed, all of a sudden anger. But it's it's not that he didn't have the ability to be angry and then he learned anger. It was that because he loved so much, anger was possible. Do you follow me? Because when you love something, you're going to defend it. When you love something, you're going to fight for it, right? And so because God, we see his wrath, it gives us a window into how much he actually loves, how much he actually wants his people to be close to him. And this is where his goodness comes in. Like we read in um, Zephaniah chapter 3, it says that he is a mighty savior. Think about those two words. God is mighty And he saves. That is the greatest news in the universe. That God is mighty and he saves. What that statement basically is stating that God can and he will. God is mighty, all powerful, which means he can. You got a problem in your life? He can. Right? He can deal with that. He can help you with that. Is Is there a country going to hell in a handbasket? God can. He's mighty. There's no problem too big for God to handle. There's no issue too complicated. There's no argument too confusing for him to understand. Those of you that are taking philosophy class, right? God isn't scared of those silly questions. He can. God is a God that can. Are you with me? But he, because he is mighty, God can accomplish these things. 
If you're sitting here and you're thinking there's stuff in my life that I'm actually absolutely powerless to overcome, I'm here to tell you that God can. Amen. He is a God that can accomplish yeah. his purposes. But not only can he, but he will. Because God is a mighty savior. And God also will fulfill his promises and his yeah. purposes. Guys, this is the God that we serve. God is a God that can, and he is also a God that will. And when he speaks something out of his mouth, rest assured, he will do that thing. Go back to Moses. When Moses was forbidden to enter the promised land, I find it very, very interesting because God made a promise, didn't he? He promised Moses, you're going to lead the people into the promised land. And then he sinned, and then it looked like God took away that promise. But fast forward a few thousand years. When Jesus is, on, Jesus is on the mountain of transfiguration, who was mysteriously there with Jesus when he took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain of transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. Isn't it beautiful to know that God, it might take a little bit longer of time because of the sin in our life, but when he makes a promise to you, God will keep that promise. He plucked Moses out of heaven just for a minute so he would stand on Mount Sinai, finally entering into his promised land that God had promised him when he was alive. How incredible is that? God is a God who keeps his promises. I don't know about you, but it would be 10 billion times cooler to see the promised land with Jesus being transfigured. Than walking in with Israelites during after 40 years in the wilderness. Guys, God is a God who fulfills his promises. He fulfills. He is a God that can, and he is a God that he will. And so in the Old Testament, we read in Genesis, it says God created the heavens and the earth. He created mankind. He created the plants and the animals and everything in it. And then he said this amazing word. After every time he created something, he said, it is good. Yeah. How, just focus on that one sentence right there. He creates something and he says, man, it's good. <laughs> God evidently is a God that thoroughly enjoys the creation that he makes. That he gets pleasure out of seeing the, the stars and the world and you and me. He gets pleasure out of the creation that he makes. He created everything and he said, it is good. And guys, that's, that's like the best thing ever, especially if you're self-conscious about the way you look in the mornings, right? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> he said... <laughs> He's like, I don't know, no, that's not me. I don't know what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. The Lord created you, and he said, it is good. He created you, and it is good. In Revelation 4.11, he says, the, the Bible says, For you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. Guys, just, and this is very elementary here, but it's profound. God made you because he wanted to. And just knowing that in his desire that he wanted you, guys, you can't feel lonely after knowing and believing that. Oh. He wants you. Yeah. If you feel lonely, 
That's a verse you got to read, man. He wants you. He created you because he, they exist because you created what you pleased. Guys, what that verse means is that you and I, we are the entertainment of God. It's true. It's true. It's like, I'm not very exciting though. We are the entertainment, meaning he takes delight in you. He takes delight in what you can do. He gets great pleasure out of watching you grow and learn. Guys, this is a good God that is so good that he, he cannot wait to watch you learn that next thing that he's waiting for you to learn. He's a loving father. Now, I love C.S. Lewis. I love the Chronicles of Narnia. Because in The Magician's Nephew, one of the most beautiful descriptions and analogies of creation, I think that you, you'll never find in, in the history of literature. C.S. Lewis's Aslan is, is with these children. The children kind of step through this magic portal and then there's in all this, all this darkness. They're surrounded by darkness. They have no idea where they are. They're basically in, the, in time space with nothing there. Just like they're standing in space. And they hear this voice in the distance and these children kind of they, and they, they kind of know the story, but then they see Aslan, the lion, who's representing who Jesus is in, in the Nar Chronicles of Narnia. And I find this fascinating because they stumble across Aslan singing. He's singing Narnia into existence. And they watch and they hear Aslan creating the world of Narnia. And obviously this is beautiful analogy to God creating the cosmos. Because, but, I, but the beauty of this, of this thought is that God is singing into existence your very life because it brings him great delight. Guys, what did we just read in verse 17? This last, that he will sing over you with joyful songs. Guys, I do not know... Another verse in the whole Bible that says or explains or describes God singing. But here's one. And that ought to freak you out. God singing over you. Rejoicing over you with joyful songs. Guys, what the Bible is painting is a picture of a loving father. Who also has a mother nature in him all, as well. Who's nurturing his children. Nurturing his people. And you just, you imagine a baby nestling in her mother's arms. As she's singing her to sleep at night. Guys, this is what God is actually like. He loves you so much. He longs to comfort you. To soothe you. And to bring you peace. He is a severe Severe God, but he is also so very good. In the New Testament, we find this exact same concept when we say that Jesus is the lion and the lamb. It is the exact explanation and representation of God's severity and his goodness. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. And James Stewart, a Scottish theologian, wrote these words and I don't think we could find anything better to explain this. He says this about Jesus being the lion and the lamb. He says, He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men. 
Yet he spoke of the coming on the clouds of heaven with, with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming. Yet he was so genial and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. No one was half so compassionate to sinners, yet no one ever spoke such red-hot scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. Jesus' whole life was love. Yet on one occasion... He demanded of the Pharisees how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a servant of all, washing the disciples' feet. Yet, masterfully, he strode into the temple with the hucksters and money changers, fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. He saved others, yet at last himself he did not save. There is nothing in history, he says, like the union of contrasts which confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus is the mystery of divine personality. Jesus was able to do all of it. He was able to be severe and rebuke the Pharisees that were so wicked and so evil. And he was also ready to embrace the children that would come And he says, do not reject any of these kids to come to me, for theirs is the kingdom. Right? Guys, what Jesus does is he reveals an incredible fact about God. Jesus reveals that God is ultimately a father. Now, when I say this statement, when when you read this sentence on the screen, Jesus revealed that God ultimately is a father. That may bring out several different reactions from you. Now, some of us here had horrible fathers. And when you hear that, God, if God is a, if he's anything like my dad, man, that's not good news. But I want to tell you something. Whether you had a great example of who a father was or a bad example, God is a particular kind of father. He is a particular kind of loving father that cares Deeply about you and I. So first thing I'm going to say, and Joy actually can come back and she's going to get on the guitar and we're going to have a a communion time together tonight. But I want you to think about this. The Lord is a loving Father whose affections are constantly being poured out onto His Son Jesus and therefore His affections constantly being poured out onto you. God is a loving Father that created you and I, and who came to this world. And so when God comforts you, when he's here, we read this verse that God sings over you and rejoices over you and I and loves so deeply. What we do is we rejoice. We say, thank you, Jesus. We sing praise and worship songs like we did tonight earlier. We rejoice when God is here to comfort us and we read things like this and, and when we're in fellowship. Y'all with me? Yeah. But think about this. What about when God corrects you? Because remember, he's a father. And guys, a loving father would never allow you to go freely into a stupid life. He's going to do everything he can to get in your way. 
to protect you from living a stupid, sinful, meaningless life. Only a loving father would get in the way. Only a loving father would stand in the way and be the bad guy and say, no, I will not let you do this. And if you, dis if you, if you completely leave my house, then I'm saying th this is the way my house is going to be. Do you follow me what I'm saying here? God is a loving father, which means he's severe, but he's also so good because his father nature is constantly pouring out to you. He will not let you run away from him without a fight. And that's good news. So when we see God comforting us, we rejoice. But I want to tell you something else. When God corrects you and rebukes you, Guys, that actually means that he loves you. And you know what our response should be? We rejoice. We rejoice when he comforts us. And you actually get to rejoice when he corrects you also. And let me explain it this way. If you are here and you have felt deep conviction of sin. And you've just felt like, like the Lord is just so displeased with my life. I want to encourage you. With that, Because you know what that means? If you feel conviction of sin, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, guys, right there, that means that the Holy Spirit is not done with you. Yeah. It means he hasn't left you. It means he hasn't forgotten you. So when you find yourself in a place where you've got this guilt, you've got this struggle, you're like, I'm just, Lord, I'm just so... Defeated. I'm so sorry, and I do this, and I just keep going back to this. I keep going back to that. And you feel that guilt. That means that God is not done with you yet. It means the Holy Spirit is still speaking to you. And the time when we need to get worried is when you stop hearing his voice. Because that, mean you, that means you've been running for so long you forgot what his voice sounds like. And you need to run back quickly. Need to quickly run back into the arms of Jesus. Is this making sense? Yeah. When he corrects you, guys, he's not done with you. It means he loves you. He's a loving father that wants to see you grow into something magnificent. Think of it like this. Winky Prattney said this analogy and it almost brought me to tears. He, his son runs into the room and Little little William is like three years old or something, and he's got two pieces of paper, and they're like awkwardly taped together with just one piece of tape. And he's like, Daddy, Daddy, look, look, look. And uh, Winky Prattney's, the, the father's saying, they're going, oh, uh, what is it? Because <laughs> he couldn't make out what it was. And, and then the, the look of defeat on the son, it's a paper airplane. You know, he's like, oh, I'm so stupid. Of course it is. Of course it's an airplane. Wow, that's amazing. Good. This is, that's awesome. And then he grabs it. And then, and so the next day what happens is the father puts this little paper airplane, two pieces of paper stuck together with some tape, sticks it in a picture frame, hangs it on the wall. And underneath the inscription, it says, Willie's plane runs into the room and sees this thing that he made and it's on the wall 
and his father showing that I am proud of you. Guys, when you do something so small for God, that's what he's actually like. That he takes the small efforts that you give to him and he gets excited. He rejoices over you and sings over you and says, that's my boy or that's my daughter. And he hangs that thing on the wall for the whole world to see because he's proud of you. That's the type of father he is. He's not this military dad that wants to shove you under his thumb and have power over you. He wants to rejoice and sing over you and hang that thing you did on that wall so the whole world can see. That is the type of father he's like. He loves you. He loves you. For Jesus Christ was not bound on the cross against his will. He wasn't dragged to this crucifixion because it was something he did not choose. Nobody could take Jesus' life away. He says, I lay my life down of my own accord. Follow me here. Jesus' self-giving love is entirely unconstrained and free. It comes not from any necessity, but entirely out of who he is, the glory of his Father. Through the cross, we see a God who delights to give himself. That's the type of father he is. Constantly pouring himself himself out, delighting to give himself to you. In all creatures, indeed, both high and low, the glory of God shines. But nowhere has it shown more brightly than in the cross of Jesus. Guys, here is a glory that no other God would want. You think about Allah. The Muslim God, you see, he's not a father. He's only a king. He's not a dad. He's just a ruler and a tyrant and a king. That's who Allah is. He, what, what tyrannical king type of God would ever dream about coming to a cross to suffer and die? They wouldn't. Wouldn't even think of it. That kind of God is the God that just enjoys staring in the mirror all day long because they're infatuated with himself. But our God is a Trinitarian God who for all of eternity has poured himself out onto his son. Guys, that's our God. You know why? Because Jesus' life reveals that God is a father. Because when the son shows up to creation, we know who he came from. And when the son of the living God comes, we say, this, my father, Jesus says, the whole world must know that I love the father. That's his goal. Saying I and the father are one. Jesus's goal is to reveal that God is not this tyrannical king type of God, this single person, non-Trinitarian God that loves himself so much that would have no reason to create creation. There's no reason to love anything else. For a one-person God. Because he just loves himself all day. But our God unselfishly chooses for the highest good of his son, Jesus. And created you to bring joy and pleasure to him so that he can bring joy and pleasure to you. Amen.